Heavenly Father, we are listening to your word. Come now by your Holy Spirit and help us to hear what you have to say to us. To strengthen us, to challenge us, to convict us, to assure us. Show us, help us again to feel the thrill of hope that this season brings. So Lord, minister to us, we pray, through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. When I was doing my THM, I was doing it through Western Seminary, which is in Portland, Oregon, and it was a modular program, which meant five or six times a, uh, over the course of the program, I had to travel out to the Pacific Northwest and take an in-person class, you know, sit in a classroom for seven days, uh, drink from a theological fire hose, stumble back to the airport and fly home. And I remember one class in particular, I was uh, with a guy who lives in Seattle, and uh, we were on break, and we were just talking. I was, I was sharing how, as a Florida boy, going out to the Pacific Northwest, like, how amazing, just like the scenery, and, and just driving on Interstate 5 from Portland across the river back to my hotel, just being like, oh, oh my gosh, it is so beautiful here. What is happening? It's like, you know, mountain, uh, huge mountains with snow-capped peaks, just, just like your daily drive, your daily commute. And I was sharing that with him, and he was like, yeah, but if you live here, it's just, if anything, it feels almost claustrophobic. It feels like everywhere you go, there's like a giant mountain, like, leaning over you, you know. And he was, he was like, man, I went out to Kentucky recently, and he was doing an interview for a PhD program, and he went out to Kentucky, and he's like, the sky was so big in Kentucky. And he was blown away. And it, it kind of dawned on me that, man, those things which at first sight, at first hearing, at first experience are awesome and majestic and beautiful and they take our breath away over time that sometimes they just sort of fade into the wallpaper, don't they? I mean, maybe a relationship, maybe a dream that you had, a goal, you know, some, maybe that your dream job, you're like, you got your dream job and you start your dream job and about two weeks in, it's just any other job, right? There's something in our human hearts where, where, the wonder of things starts to kind of be eroded. And I wonder if for us who have heard this, these readings and this story over and over again that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world to save sinners, if, if maybe just a little bit it is faded into the wallpaper and we start to think, well, of course that's what Jesus did. That's his whole thing, right? Like that's his whole thing is to come into the world and die for sins. Like that's... That's Jesus' wheelhouse. Well, it is Jesus' wheelhouse, but it's also incredible. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It should take our breath away. It should thrill us to realize that the God who made everything, the King of glory that we sang about in Psalm 24, the King of glory came into our world, took on flesh, became like us in every way, and then laid down his life so that we could be saved. This it's so simple to us who've heard it over and over, but it is so amazing. God became a man to save us from sin. That's what this passage teaches us. God became a man to save us from sin. As we look at this passage, with this tension of, of the one who is both true God and true man, we see it. It's held together all throughout this, passage, this gospel passage. In verses 18 and 19, it says that Mary and Joseph had been betrothed, but that, that uh, they had not come together yet. They hadn't consummated their marriage yet, and she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It's, a, it's the child of Mary, and yet it is of divine origin. It comes from the Holy Spirit. In verse 20, 
that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, if the thing that's conceived in her, the child that's conceived in her, we wouldn't expect that to be a rabbit or a snake, but a human child, right? The human child which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, in his name, it's interesting, the child shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not the mighty king, not the ruling, reigning, powerful one, not the rich one, not the imposing one, but the little child shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. It's holding this tension of that he is true God and true man, and it's, it's an amazing, beautiful, it ought to stir our hearts to worship. You know, we say in the creed that Jesus is begotten, not made. Through him all things were made, and yet through the Virgin Mary and the Holy Spirit, he was made man. There is this beautiful reality that Jesus is true God and true man, that God became a man. Luther wrote uh, this beautiful Christmas hymn called, From Heaven Above to, Com- uh, From Heaven Above to Earth I Come. In one of the verses, it says, These are the signs that you shall mark, the swaddling cloths and manger dark. There you will find the infant laid, by whom the heavens and earth were made. Isn't that beautiful? God became a man. That's what the season of Advent is is pointing us to and creating space for us to to allow that to touch our hearts again, or maybe for the first time. This beautiful reality that God became a man that the one, the infant laid in the manger is the one through whom all things were made. Now I know that the virgin birth, I know that can be difficult for us, right? Very uh, post-enlightenment, Western rationalistic worldview. It's hard for us to believe in the virgin birth. You know, uh, maybe you've been invited here this morning, or maybe you were dragged here this morning by the ear, and you're just like scoffing at the idea of the virgin birth. You would agree maybe with Christopher Hutchins, who the late atheist, who once said in a debate, which is more likely, that the whole natural order was suspended or that a Jewish minx came up with a lie? And I was like, wow, that's provocative. But maybe, maybe you resonate with that a little bit. Or maybe you're just a Christian and you, and, and you believe in the Bible, you believe in Jesus, you believe he rose from the dead, but the virgin birth is that one little thing, right? The one little thing. It's not my thing, but I have my own things that just go, do I really believe that? I need to look at that again and think through that again. And Lord, help me to believe this because I'm not sure Maybe that's you. Maybe, you maybe, maybe the virgin birth is the one that gets you, you know? Well, let me help you with that. Because I think if, if you look at this passage, it really does help us to, to believe robustly in the virgin birth, to, to not be embarrassed about believing in the virgin birth. Because first of all, it's not saying that all children are born by the Holy Spirit, right? It's saying that in this one particular case. No, it's not saying that the natural order has been changed. It's saying in this one particular case, This child has been born of the Holy Spirit. And it's not because Joseph and the the writers of Scripture are unsophisticated or unintelligent. Right? Look at verse 19. Joseph resolves to divorce Mary quietly. Why? Because he knows about the birds and the bees, y'all. He knows his instinct is that she's been unfaithful in some way, and so he's going to divorce her quietly. And it takes an angel coming to him, a supernatural being coming to him and saying, This child is from the Holy Spirit. It's not because they're unsophisticated or unintelligent. In fact, did you know that over 65% of Nobel Prize winners identify as Christian and that the number is actually higher when you exclude the humanities and only look at the hard sciences? It's not because people are unintelligent or unsophisticated that they believe 
in the virgin birth. You don't have to be unsophisticated or unintelligent, in other words, to believe in the virgin birth. You can be a, a, a robust thinker and believe that the virgin birth is compelling. And I think it actually takes more faith to believe in materialism than it does to believe in the virgin birth. As we look at the world, as we look at verse 20, for instance, uh, it, it was an angel, right? It, this reminder, this su supernatural being, hey, Joseph, don't forget there's a God in heaven, right? The whole world cannot be summed up in cause and effect and natural causes, but there's a God who made all things and works in the world. And he has, by his Holy Spirit, conceived this child in the womb of Mary. Now, if you deny that God exists from the outset, I think you have to believe and confess something that's even crazier than the virgin birth. You have to believe that this entire universe, in all its beauty, majesty, immensity, and uh, human consciousness that looks out into it and notices it, the fine-tuning of the universe that allows for life, the things like beauty and truth and love are just figments of your imagination born by chemical and electrical processes, and that ultimately this entire world that runs on cause and effect was caused by nothing. So your choice is believe in the supernatural or believe in this incredible, unbelievable material world where science and natural forces account for everything. One author summed it up this way. I love it. It just puts such a good point on it. He says, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Materialists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Pick your miracle. It's not unsophisticated. It's not unintelligent. It's actually easier to believe. And third, the virgin, the virgin birth is a compelling thing that we should believe because of the way that Christ fulfills the Old Testament. So in this scenario, the angel comes and speaks with Joseph. In verse 22, he says, uh, Matthew comments and says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from Isaiah. Now Matthew loves this phrase, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, what was written by the prophets, what was written in the Old Testament. And it's deeper, it includes prediction, but it's deeper than prediction. It's a way of saying, as I look at the Old Testament and all that was said and all that was promised and all that Israel experienced, Jesus ties all of those longings and anxieties and hopes and struggles and suffering and joy, he ties it all up in his person in a way that is unbelievably true. That Jesus, uh, that God works in similar ways throughout redemptive history and that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things. Think of it, think of it like, there's these Old Testament prophecies and there's the cup of the promise, right? And then something happens that partially fills the cup. And then when Jesus comes, the cup is overflowing. It is fully filled. It is fulfilled in him. So there's a child in Isaiah's day, I think. As I read Isaiah, there is a, there's a promise of a child that's going to be born. And there is a child born in Isaiah's day that's a sign uh, that Assyria is going to come and judge the earth. But as you read Isaiah and you get to chapter 9 and you read that this child will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And you see that Israel was ultimately taken into exile and the, and the kingdom was never really restored. There's this longing for a king, for a child, for the one who is to come, the promised one. And Matthew's saying, man, when I met Jesus, he is that one. 
He is the one who fulfills all the longings and hopes and promises and, yes, predictions of the Old Testament. There is a virgin who would bear a son, and he's not just the sign that God is with us, but he is himself God with us. God became a man. And he became a man so that he could save us from sin. As we go in verse 21, the angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, the, word, the name Jesus, it means the Lord saves. That's, it is his whole thing. He comes to be the savior of the world. But I wonder if it would have been surprising to Joseph, to, to those who initially heard the message of the gospel, that what the Messiah was coming to do was to save people from their sins. You know, I think people in his day were probably a lot like people in our day. They looked out at the world or they themselves had experienced, you know, um, incredible health issues. And they see other people suffering with cancer, with disease. And they say, Messiah, do something about that. Or they look out and they say, look at all the poor. Look at the Look at those who are impoverished. Look at those who don't have resources. Look how the rich keep getting richer. And look how famine and drought. And look at the economy. Messiah, do something about the economy. Or maybe as they look out into the world, they see the cultural changes. You know, little, little Jewish boys and girls growing up and being influenced by Greek culture and abandoning their faith. And they're, they're anxious and they're worried and they're fearful. And they're saying, Messiah, fix our culture. Or maybe... They look at those unjust Romans, those unjust political leaders, and they say, Messiah, kick them out. You know, take up the sword, Jesus. But the angel says Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Now, he does, he does bring the end of the exile. Matthew 1, verse 17 says that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David and from David to the exile and from exile to Jesus. He is the one who ends the exile, but he's not dealing with the exile on this playing field through material causes. He came to deal with what's going on in our hearts, what's going on on the inside, and to make us the type of people who can do something about it in the world by changing us. He wants to do something in us so that he can do something through us. He came to save us from our sins. He didn't come to wield earthly power. He didn't come to lord his power over us or to make us feel small, to condemn us, but he came to lay his life down. He was born to die. Jesus himself in the Gospel of Matthew, he says in Matthew 20, verse 28, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The way he was going to save his people was by dying. By giving up his life, he sets us free from the enslavement to sin and Satan. In Matthew 26, verse 28, at the Lord's Supper, at the, at, the, at the Last Supper, Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you and for many for what? The forgiveness of sins. He ties his death and the supper and our sins together. Jesus came. He was born to die. God became a man that he might save us from sin. And now the church is the, the realm, the place, the, the, the beginning of his kingdom where because we've been set free from our sins, we are now free to serve him and love him and to be an outpost of his kingdom, to, to show the world that the exile is ended, that estrangement from God is over, that peace with God and one another is possible because he has saved us 
from our sins. And he can, he can only do this. This is, the, this is the beauty of the incarnation of, of the message of the gospel at Christmas time. He can only do this because he is God and man. As, as Paul said in our Romans reading, right? He was descended from David according to the flesh and declared son of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is both true God and true man. And because he's true God and true man, he can be the savior that we need. As true God, he has the authority and the power and his death is of infinite worth to save us, to rescue us, and defeat, to defeat all of our enemies. And as true man, he understands what it's like. He knows what it's like to grieve. He knows what it's like, like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be exhausted and to see how sin and brokenness destroy the lives of people around you. He came into the world. His goodness and grace can touch the depth of our need because he is true God and true man. Every Christmas, sometimes even before Christmas, we start to watch Christmas movies and Christmas specials in our family. And there's, there's, we have seven kids, right? So there's a lot of, desire, of, of wanting to do that. Everybody loves to do that. I have my favorites. You know, I, I'm always trying to get my kids to watch Home Alone. Like just every time. I'm like, you guys want to watch Home Alone? Let's watch Home Alone. And they're like, no, Dad. We've seen it a hundred times. But one of the ones that they love is called Prep and Landing. Have you guys seen Prep and Landing, Disney's Prep and Landing? It's a little 30-minute um, animated show. It's about basically Santa's special forces, his elves that go before him. They go into the houses before him, and they make sure not a creature is stirring. And they make sure that they do cookie assessment to make sure there's no nuts in there because Santa's allergic to nuts. And they make sure the, the milk is at the right temperature, and Santa's not going to get, uh, you know, any kind of bacterial infection. And they're, they're the ones who go before. And uh, in Prep and Landing, it follows the story of Wayne, a Prep and Landing elf who's been an elf for 227 years. At one point in the story, he's passed over for a promotion, and he says to his new partner, his partner got the promotion, he gets a new partner. He says to his new partner, I've been working Prep and Landing for 227 years, and believe me, the thrill is gone. And, and his new partner, who's, you know, straight out of Kringle Academy, he says, imagine the smile on the child. They're, they're there in the child's bedroom. Imagine the smile on his face tomorrow morning. Imagine all the great memories he'll pass on to his children and to his children's children. The thrill may be gone for you, Wayne, but it's not gone for him. And isn't that what Christmas movies are always trying to do? That Christmas movies are not made for kids. They're made for you and me. They're trying to get us to recapture the Christmas spirit, to believe in something bigger than ourselves, to, to see again the wonder of this story of Christmas. If I could say it this way, the scriptures want to help us to see again the wonder, the thrill of the message of the gospel that God became a man to save us from sin. I wonder in the remaining seven days of Advent, what can you do to create space to let the thrill come in again? Because God became a man to save you from sin. I want to conclude with this, this quote from John Calvin where he, he reflects on all that Jesus has done for us in the gospel. And I, and I just want to share it with you because to me, it, it's been, when I first read it, it was so powerful, so moving in my spirit because it, it just touches on so many points of our need, of our brokenness, of our sin. And so I want to just invite you to let this kind of wash over you and listen, maybe there's something in here that speaks directly to you. Calvin wrote this as a preface to a, a new translation 
of the Bible in his day. He says, Jesus was sold to buy us back, made captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, a sin offering for our righteousness. He was marred that we might be made beautiful. He died for our life, so that by him fury is made gentle, wrath appeased, darkness turned into light, fear assured, despisal despised, debt canceled, labor lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, difficulty easy, disorder ordered, division united, ignominy ennobled, rebellion subjected, force forced back, combat combated, war warred against, vengeance avenged, torment tormented, damnation damned, the abyss sunk into the abyss, hell transfixed, death dead, mortality made immortal. In short, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness, all misfortune. All of that is contained in this simple truth. God became a man to save us from sins. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that the thrill of hope would return to our, our hearts and our minds. That this season we would overflow with hope by the power of your Holy Spirit, knowing that you, Jesus, became a man to save us from sins. Help us to be people who are full of joy, who are full of hope, who live with love, because we're so overwhelmed by your grace. Minister to us, we pray, especially as we come to your table. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.